Well, if you have your Bibles, take them and turn to John. And you know, you think you're, we're still in a study of John, sort of not, really. Actually, we're starting a new series today, and I'm going to introduce that series in just a minute, but we're going to still be in John. John 13 is where we're, we're going to start out today. But, but before we do that, I want to tell you about a guy by the name of Charles. Charles. I want to tell you about Charles. Charles, uh, I don't think his friends called him Chuck much, but his name was Charles, and he was, he was kind of one of those guys that had his mind fixed on something he wanted to accomplish. You know something that, you know those guys that are so fixed, they're so focused that people would say, you're always talking about that. You're always doing that. You're, well, some people thought he was a nut. Uh, they thought he was a nut because he was so focused on what he wanted to do. And what he wanted to do was what he felt God was calling him to do. And you know, it's always a little scary when God says, when somebody says to you, you know, God told me, or God wants me to do something, you know, what's coming next? And you never know what people are going to say. And, uh, but Charles was one of those games. He was a Christian and he was an avid Bible student. He constantly studied uh, the Bible. He was always, always going to church, always studied Bible. He believed Charles Goodyear uh, believed that God had called him into this world to solve a scientific problem. Uh, Charles Goodyear, you've heard the name. We all heard Goodyear. And he believed that God had called him to solve the scientific problem. And the problem was, how do you make rubber stay in shape? That was his deal because, because rubber had been, listen, they had found rubber all the way back when Cortez and all those guys first came to this country. They found it way back then. And then, and then what they did is uh, the, the businessmen in Europe, when they found out, they put millions of dollars into developing rubber because it was a waterproofing agent. You could make life preservers out of it. And back in the early 1830s, everybody was going across the Atlantic in boats and stuff. You, you could make shoes. You made all kinds of stuff out of rubber, millions of dollars. And it was so cool. It worked. It worked. It worked until summer came. And it got hot. And all of that gooey stuff that they had somehow solidified for a short period of time came apart. And so those who made millions and invested millions, well, those who had invested millions lost millions, and uh, the rubber boom was gone. Everybody said, it's gone, it's over, Charles Goodyear said, I don't think so. I don't think so, because God had given him a passion. And so he went to work, and he worked for years and years and years and years and years, and in 1839, he got it. 1839, he, oh, did I tell you that Charles Goodyear was not educated? He uh, didn't have any money. And he was, well, he was married and his wife was a little ticked off that he was spending all the time trying to figure this stuff out. He figured it out though. And, and what he did is he mixed some white lead with sulfur and and that, as he mixed it up and let it dry, he figured out then that's what caused rubber to congeal and hold its form even when heat was reapplied to it. It would hold its form. You and I would not be a tire-based society if it worked for Charles Goodyear. He figured out it's the, it's the process of what? You know the name of that is, you scientists? Vulcanization. It's the process of vulcanization. I knew that. I mean, I knew, I knew the name. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what was mixed or added until just the other day. 
what a passionate guy. And, and as a result of this passion, this nutcase focus, he started a revolution. I mean, the world is different because of what he did. And he became rich and famous, didn't he? And life lived for him happily ever after. No. It, uh, somebody stole his idea. It got into the courts, and he never profited a penny from it. Until 1889, two guys, two guys uh, whose names we don't even know, went to Akron, Ohio, and started a tire company called the Charles Goodyear Tire Company. In his name, in his honor, because this poor guy... <laughs> discovered it, figured it out, and didn't make a penny off of it, but he was passionate, and he started a revolution. A revolution. I wonder what would happen if he had said, to all the people that said, good year, get a job. I wonder, I just wonder what would happen if he said, all right, I'm getting a job at McDonald's, man. That's it, nine to five, and I'm out of here. Here's what I think would have happened. <clears throat> I think God would have taken that passion that he gave Goodyear and given it to somebody else. And then, and then they would have had the great joy of being used to foment a revolution. He died broke, but he died happy. And then I think about Jesus who was in revolutionary par excellence. Uh, I think about Jesus who came into this world and turned it upside down. He changed everything. And then what he did is he called other people to follow him and they changed everything. You and I are his disciples and we, are too, we too are called to be revolutionaries. That's what we are called to be. We are... I love this picture here of this horse getting away from the pack. I give Sabrina Beasley the ideas and she figures it out. That's great. Isn't that cool? I want to be unleashed. I want to be a revolutionary. And some of you are saying, I don't want to be a revolutionary. Pete, you be the revolutionary. That's cool. You see, revolutionaries get targets on their backs. They get a lot of criticism. There's got to be a lot of sacrifice. You're going to be a revolutionary. You got, to, you got to sacrifice a lot to pull it off, to change things, to foment new things. You got to do that. But, but, you know, John Maxwell said it. You can spend your life any way you want. But you can only spend it once. And I, I, that, I can't get away from that. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. I can spend my life any way I want. Now that I'm his, I'm going home when I die. I know. I'm going to heaven. It's going to be cool. It's going to be great. Heard about the Sunday school teacher that was talking to the, the kids and said, how many of you want to go to heaven? And they're all raising their hand, all raising their hand. How many, how many? Little Johnny wouldn't raise his hand. Johnny, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you want to go to heaven uh, when you die. And he goes, oh, when I die, I thought you were getting up a group to go right now. <laughs> You know, I'm going to heaven when I die or when Jesus brings me home. It's going to be cool. But in the meantime, how do I want to live? How do you want to live? Spend it however you want. Um, you can only spend it once. And I was thinking about that, how easy it is for me at this point. 
I've been spending most of this year trying to figure out, all right, God, clarify for me so I can clarify for the church where we're going now in the future. We haven't fulfilled our vision. We're, we're living it now. We're unleashing it. We're letting it go. And yet the reality is, I think, that a lot of Christians who want to be revolutionaries aren't. We're leashed. We're not unleashed. I love to see my dog. I don't have a dog anymore. He's in heaven. Um, but I love when I jog or ride a bike by and see somebody walking with one of these things, these leashes. You know, I just, these leashes, they get way out there. And then the dog who's coming after my calf, you know, gets yanked back all of a sudden. And I like that. And, and we all, I like it when the dog jerks back. I've never seen a cat on a leash, but I like how... I like how much room this gives, but it's an illusion. It gives the illusion of freedom. And you know what I think sometimes about us as Christians, and sometimes me too, that we think we're free and we're not. We think we're free, but we're leashed. We're leashed to our fears, and we're not gonna risk it. We're not gonna be revolutionaries. I ain't starting anything new. We, 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 uh, we think we're free, but we're leashed to unforgiveness or our addictions or our selfishness or the stuff we want. I feel, so I want to be a revolutionary, but I can't be because I'm really leashed. And I want life to be a great adventure, but for many Christians, and I think you want this too, you want life to be a great adventure, but for some of us, it's a great adventure in missing the point that Jesus called us to unleash us to be revolutionaries. And, um, and that's a big challenge. And that's why at the beginning of the year, because our constituency changes so much over the course of the year, new members are added, and by every fall we start out, we've got practically a new church. Who's moved? Who's stayed? We, we got to go back and remember who we are as a church. We are a Christ-centered Presbyterian church committed to leading people to personal faith in Christ, building them up in the faith, and deploying them as active servants of the Great Commission. Building people in truth and love is the shortened form. And uh, a few years ago, and actually when we started in the, in the home Bible study, uh, the, the phrase, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God, was what animated us as a church. In other words, build a church that would be revolutionary, and we've done some incredible things by God's grace together. And now we get to live that vision out more as we move ahead. But we got to be unleashed. And the place to start is where Jesus started. As I thought about this, I, I realized that the place to start is at the very core of our being, at the very center of who we are. If we're going to be revolutionaries, we've got to have revolutionary motivation. To be unleashed as Christians, we've got to have revolutionary motivation. So that's where Jesus starts. That's where we're going to start. So we're going to talk today about being unleashed in this whole area of revolutionary motivation. And we're going to look at John 13, 1 through 20. This is God's word. Today, next week, I'm going to speak a little bit more to your mind. Today, I want to speak to your heart. Listen, listen to what Jesus has to say. It was just before the Passover feast 
Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things uh, under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. But I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. This is God's holy word, and what a powerful word it is. It shows us that life begins at the motivational level. Uh, Kenny Luck, who is in men's ministry and works with the Uh, Rick Warren said this, major breakthroughs require dogged determination. Major breakthroughs require dogged determination. That was before he quit his six-figure salary and started a men's ministry. And when you start something new, it takes dogged determination. But what really matters is what's going on at the motivational level in your heart. Zig Ziglar, that great theologian and pastor. uh, Well, he's not, but he is, sort of. Zig Ziglar, the guy who's written... 16 million books on motivation, um, on sales. Uh, He's like 80-something and still going strong, speaking to thousands. But he tells a story in in his latest book, um, Better Than Good, which is the title of the way he views life. We ought to live better than good. But in that book, he tells the time when he and his wife and son were at dinner in Dallas, Texas, and the waiter comes up, and pours them water and sloshes water and ice cubes all over the tape. I mean, just really careless, gets all over the place. And he looks at the uh, young man and he said, son, you don't like your job, do you? And he said, no, I don't. And he said, well, I wouldn't worry. I don't think you're gonna have to, uh, to mess with this job much longer. And, uh, and the guy stops and he goes, what? What do you mean? He said, son, there's no place of business and existence that can afford to have someone with your attitude working there, even if you paid them to work there. 
eyes got as big as saucers and he took off, ran into the kitchen. He came out a couple of minutes later and he had a smile on his face and he was kind to everybody. Ziegler was watching this guy. He was kind, he was kind to them, brought the meal, did a really, really good job. He did a better than good job. He did an excellent job. And afterwards, Ziegler gave him a big tip and, he, and the kid said, thanks for the advice. I needed that. I needed that. Attitude. Attitude is everything when it comes to how we live and how we, what we do and what we accomplish. Attitude comes from motivation, though. What is our motivation at the deepest level of our lives? Our motivations are everything. What motivates you? What motivates me? Well, Jesus gives us a great, I, I want to tell you about what Jesus, I want to talk about Jesus' prime mover, first of all. His motivation, his prime mover was found in verse 1, and, and it's clearly love. Just before Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. His time had come. Aren't those ominous words? If you've been with us for several weeks, we've been studying in the Gospel of John. And those are ominous words because we saw in John 7, verse 30, that even though people were opposed to Jesus, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because, well, let's say it together, because his time had not yet come. And then in John 8, another situation where they were going after Jesus, and uh, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because... His time had not yet come. But now, his time had come. It was D-Day. It was go time, and the go time meant that he was going to go to the cross. And as the eternal Son of God, with absolute knowledge of all things, he understood the implications down to the T, down to every whip of the lash, every cut that he would bear, every drop of blood that he would shed, he understood it fully before it happened. His time had come that he and the Father and the Son and the Spirit before the foundation of the world had determined that he would do for us. And then we think back of John 10, just a few weeks ago when we studied that because, uh, because it's so powerful. He said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And I lay down my life for the sheep. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. His time had come. Margaret Thatcher and once said, no one would have remembered the good, good Samaritan if he had only had good intentions. Nobody would have remembered the good Samaritan if he'd only had good intentions. Nobody would have remembered Jesus if he had only had good intentions. But his motivation was love for us. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now, the text says, shows them the full extent of his love. Where does he show the full extent of his love? First of all, in washing their feet, which we're going to talk about right now in a minute, but then by allowing himself, giving himself up to be interrogated, 
beaten, nailed to a cross, buried in the humiliation of a common criminal. His motivation was love at the deepest level. Love that you and I don't understand. And the reason why so many people in this world don't understand Jesus is they don't understand his motivations. How do you understand such supernatural love? It takes God to help you understand it. Lou Holtz, the coach, uh, the former coach of the uh, USC, the other USC, said this, motivation is simple. You eliminate those who are not motivated. Motivation's simple. In sales and sports, you eliminate those who aren't motivated. Just get them out of there. But when it comes to life, if we aren't motivated, we eliminate ourselves. If we aren't motivated with the proper motivation, the motivation of love, we eliminate ourselves, and there's no way we'll be revolutionary. Jesus was a revolutionary because of his revolutionary motivation. Love. Now look at the definition of love that I've given here in verses 2 through 11. We see love. I think Jesus models this. Love is egoless compassion in action. That's what I think he shows here. E love is egoless. E I can't even hardly say that. Egoless compassion in action. That's what love is. And that's what he models here in this context. That's why he was so revolutionary. And I love the, I love the way the New American Standard, if you read that Bible, it's got little asterisks by many of the verbs in the text I just read. In the original Greek of this text, what John does is he puts it all in the present tense, almost all of it in the present tense. I know it says that Jesus sat down and puts it in the past tense. It sounds like he's narrating what happened, but when he writes it in the original Greek, he puts it, he puts it in the present tense. Now, I'm gonna read some of it for you like that. John here is writing this down, but he was an eyewitness. And have you ever had one of those moments where you just, things kind of get into slow motion? You just, like right there, I almost fell. And, uh, um, and you were going, no, no, no. 9-11 um, was this week, and we remembered, remembered that. That horrible incident. Somebody had sent me the slides Again, of the pictures of that. And as I went through them slowly, it was like slow motion. Oh, the clouds slowly of dust, the flames, eyes, ah, horrible. John is here. And in a slow motion kind of way, he pictures what Jesus is doing. Uh, he knows that God, Jesus knows that God had put all authority under his control, that he was going to go home to the Father where he'd been for all eternity. Great stuff. You still got to go to the cross. So he says, putting it in the present tense, Jesus gets up. John is narrating it this way. So Jesus gets up and he takes off his outer clothes. He gets up and he lays them aside. And he, and, 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 and he takes off the clothing. He wraps the towel around him and, he, and, and pours water. Not he poured water. He's pouring the water. And then he goes over to the guys and he kneels down and he starts washing their feet. And he goes from disciple to disciple until he gets to Peter. 
who again has no problem telling the Lord of the universe what to do. You are not going to wash my feet. The good thing about Peter is that he loved Jesus, absolutely. Peter had an attack of sanity. And he saw the disjunction here. He saw that the God from on high had come down and was showing them love in a powerful way. And he caught the insanity of that. You're not going to do it. He says, you got to let me do it or you're not going to be with me. He said, all right, all right, all right. Give me a bath. Jesus said, you don't need a bath. I'm not talking about physical cleanliness here. I'm talking about soul cleanliness, spiritual cleanliness. I'm talking about dealing with your sins and this washing of their feet was a way to show them not only how they were to live, but how they were also to think, to think about what he would do for them on the cross. He was going to wash their souls. Um, guys, this washing the feet is just beyond my comprehension. The only way I can put this in perspective is to go uh, to a men's adventure retreat. Many of you have been at our men's adventure retreat. You know what it's like at the end of the day. We've been out riding bikes. We've been out kayaking. We've been slogging through the mud. We've been doing all kinds of really cool things. Now picture this. Picture this. You come into the place where we're going to eat the meal at night. And you come in and you are dirty. And you all sit down in a big semicircle. And I come up and I kneel down and I be, this is how the only way I can see this and make sense is I begin to untie those incredibly filthy tennis shoes. Not only are they dirty, they smell. I have almost an out-of-body experience when I think about me doing that. And I'm so glad it is not a convention in America that pastors or anybody else washes anybody else's feet. Listen, the reason why they did that in the first century is that when you traveled from place to place, it was hot and dusty, and you mixed dirt and sand and sweat and leather sandals. You don't clean their feet before dinner. It's not a happy culinary experience. And uh, I'm so glad that what really happens at adventure retreats is they come back, take a shower, and then they come into dinner and they wash their own pick and feet. What makes this more impressive is to understand that in the first century mindset, it was always a servant who washed feet. But at this supper, there were no servants. There were just Jesus and the disciples. And if you go back to Luke 22, verse 24, what you'll find is this, that on the way to the Last Supper, where Jesus was about ready to offer communion for the first time and wash their feet and then get ready to go to the cross, short time before he'd be arrested, the disciples were walking around talking about who was the greatest. No, it really says that. Luke 24, 22, 24. They were talking about out loud with Jesus there, who was the greatest. Now, guys, we do that all the time. We don't talk about it out loud. Most of it's kidding. I'm better than you at that. It's kind of kidding. But, but, but inside, we do it all the time. I'm better looking than that guy. I'm stronger. And you know, we're the same age. I'm stronger than him. I'm better looking. I'm a better salesman. I'm better, I'm better than that guy. We do that all the time. We just don't talk about it out loud like these guys did. So, of course, there was nobody to wash their feet. 
You've never seen so much testosterone and ego in one room at the same time. Nobody to wash the feet, so Jesus gets up and does it. And it's not that really a, a big thing because he's been doing it all of his earthly ministry, washing people's feet figuratively, healing, caring, loving. That he took on human flesh was, was a big part of it. Jesus' definition of love was egoless compassion and action, and it made him revolutionary. It made him a revolutionary, and that's what he has for us. Well, I was thinking about the application of this. What, what does this talk about? It talks about life's motivation, life's ultimate motivation, our motivation. If, in fact, we want to be revolutionaries, if we would be revolutionaries, then we have got to get out of our own little world. We've got to have, we've got to have a motivation that, under, that is a love motivation like this. And so when we look in verses 12 through 19, he finished washing their feet. He puts his clothes on and returns to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? Ask him. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so forth. That is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've given you an example for you to follow. And that is the, one of the toughest teachings I've ever heard. Take my life and let it be. You gotta be kidding. Consecrated to thee? You're kidding. My heart, my soul. What I do know is that the only way he went to the cross for you was because he loved you. And my big hope for you when you walk out of here today is that you walk out of here today remembering again, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he loves you with all of your warts and sins and dirt and stuff, that he went to the cross so that you and I could be clean. That was his motivation. That's why he's such a revolutionary. But he calls us to be revolutionaries too. And I just, I know I don't have that kind of love. I do not have that motivational level. I've been learning about this since I started following Christ and I still have so far to go. But as a church, I want to keep going there. When God said, come out here and start a church, he didn't say, just go, let's go out and build a mediocre church. Let's just go out and play church. Yeah, Pete, that's what I want you to do, play church. Hey, there were other churches out here already. And yet how easy it is for me to get into my pastoral role and do the stuff I do and I forget the motivation that needs to animate. How do we get this? Real quick, real quick, and then I'm done. I, I think one way that we can grow to begin to let this love of God take root in our hearts is to contemplate the enormity of the king of the universe coming to earth and loving us practically as he did with egoless compassion and action. I think you've got to contemplate that. And the way I do that is, is by going over and over in my mind, Philippians 2. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, united in purpose, intent, intent on one purpose, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. Yeah, he's washing people's feet. And being made in the likeness of a man, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I, I got to contemplate that and memorize that, and I got to think it through. I just want to appeal to your heart for you to allow God's love to sink in. He came for you. Picture this that Jesus not only washed the disciples' feet, but he has washed your feet. He has knelt down before you. You say, when has he washed my feet? I'll tell you when he's washed my feet, when I'm whining and complaining, when I'm sinning and then still demanding, when I, when I think I've got, I, I hung the world, and he says, you didn't, I did. When I mess up and he comes and cleans it up, and I come and confess my sins and he, he forgives me. He's washing my feet. He got dirty for me. He got dirty, bloody dirty for us on the cross. And it was his love motivation, simple. As a church, it would be cool if we were all animated by that and we can be. Because everything else flows from that revolutionary motivation. Would you pray for me? And I have been praying for you that we would be a revolutionary congregation who know we're loved and then can love. You take it to heart. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. These people before me are precious to me and precious in your sight. But may they not leave here today without remembering your love for them. And thank you in advance that as you have washed our feet, you will wash our feet again today and tomorrow. And we are humbled. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. And for sermons on video, be sure to drop by youtube.com slash Network. Hey, and while you're there, hope you'll also hit that subscribe button. Thanks. Thanks.